Chapter 22 of Public Opinion by Walter Littman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Public Opinion, Chapter 22 The Constant Reader. The loyalty of the buying public to a newspaper is not stipulated in any bond. In almost every other enterprise, the person who expects to be served enters into an agreement that controls his passing whims. At least he pays for what he obtains. In the publishing of periodicals, the nearest approach to an agreement for a definite time is the paid subscription, and that is not, I believe, a great factor in the economy of a metropolitan daily. The reader is the sole and the daily judge of his loyalty, and there can be no suit against him for breach of promise or non-support. Though everything turns on the constancy of the reader, there does not exist even a vague tradition to call that fact to the reader's mind. His constancy depends on how he happens to feel, or on his habits. And these depend not simply on the quality of the news, but more often on a number of obscure elements that in our casual relation to the press we hardly take the trouble to make conscious. The most important of these is that each of us tends to judge a newspaper, if we judge it at all by its treatment of that part of the news in which we feel ourselves involved. The newspaper deals with a multitude of events beyond our experience. And by its handling of those events, we most frequently decide to like it or dislike it, to trust it, or refuse to have the sheet in the house. If the newspaper gives a satisfactory account of that which we think we know, our business, our church, our party, it is fairly certain to be immune from violent criticism by us. What better criterion does the man at the breakfast table possess than that the newspaper version checks up with his own opinion? Therefore, most men tend to hold the newspaper most strictly accountable in their capacity, not of general readers, but of special pleaders on matters of their own experience. Rarely is anyone but the interested party able to test the accuracy of a report. If the news is local, and if there is competition, the editor knows that he will probably hear from the man who thinks his portrait unfair and inaccurate. But if the news is not local, the corrective diminishes as the subject matter recedes into the distance. The only people who can correct what they think is a false picture of themselves, printed in another city, are members of groups well enough organized to hire publicity men. Now it is interesting to note that the general reader of a newspaper has no standing in law, if he thinks he is being misled by the news. It is only the aggrieved party who can sue for slander or libel, and he has to prove a material injury to himself. The law embodies the tradition that general news is not a matter of common concern. Footnote. The reader will not mistake this as a plea for censorship. It might, however, be a good thing if there were competent tribunals, preferably not official ones, where charges of untruthfulness and unfairness in the general news could be sifted, see Liberty and the News, pages 73 through 76, except as to matter which is vaguely described as immoral or seditious. But the body of the news, though unchecked as a whole by the disinterested reader, consists of items about which some readers have very definite preconceptions. Those items are the data of his judgment, and news which men read without this personal criterion, they judge by some other standard than their standard of accuracy. They are dealing here with a subject matter which to them is indistinguishable from fiction. The canon of truth cannot be applied. 
They do not boggle over such news if it conforms to their stereotypes, and they continue to read it if it interests them. Footnote. Note, for example, how absent is indignation in Mr. Upton Sinclair against socialist papers, even those which are as malignantly unfair to employers, as certain of the papers cited by him are unfair to radicals. There are newspapers, even in large cities, edited on the principle that the readers wish to read about themselves. The theory is that if enough people see their own names in the paper often enough, can read about their weddings, funerals, sociables, foreign travels, local meetings, school prizes, their 50th birthdays, their 60th birthdays, their silver weddings, their outings and clambakes, they will make a reliable circulation. The classic formula for such a newspaper is contained in a letter written by Horace Greeley on April 3, 1860, to friend Fletcher, who was about to start a country newspaper. Footnote, cited, James Melvin Lee, The History of American Journalism, page 405. Quote, Begin with a clear conception that the subject of deepest interest to an average human being is himself. Next to that, he is most concerned about his neighbors. Asia and the Tongo Islands stand a long way after these in his regard. Do not let a new church be organized, or new members be added to one already existing, a farm be sold, a new house raised, a mill set in motion, a store opened, nor anything of interest to a dozen families occur, without having the fact duly, though briefly, chronicled in your columns. If a farmer cuts a big tree, or grows a mammoth beet, or harvests a bounteous yield of wheat or corn, set forth the fact as concisely and unexceptionally as possible. End quote. The function of becoming, as Mr. Lee puts it, quote, the printed dairy of the home town, end quote, is one that every newspaper, no matter where it is published, must in some measure fill. And where, as in a great city like New York, the general newspaper circulated broadcast cannot fill it, there exist small newspapers published on Greeley's pattern for sections of the city. In the boroughs of Manhattan and the Bronx, there are perhaps twice as many local dailies as there are general newspapers. Footnote. See John L. Given, Making a Newspaper, page 13. And they are supplemented by all kinds of special publications for trades, religions, nationalities. These diaries are published for people who find their own lives interesting. But there are also great numbers of people who find their own lives dull, and wish, like Hedda Gabler, to live a more thrilling life. For them there are published a few whole newspapers, and sections of others, devoted to the personal lives of a set of imaginary people, with whose gorgeous vices the reader can, in his fancy, safely identify himself. Mr. Hurst's unflagging interest in high society caters to people who never hope to be in high society, and yet manage to derive some enhancement out of the vague feeling that they are part of the life that they read about. In the great cities, the printed diary of the hometown tends to be the printed diary of a smart set. And it is, as we have already noted, the dailies of the cities, which carry the burden of bringing distant news to the private citizen. But it is not primarily their political and social news which holds the circulation. The interest in that is intermittent, and few publishers can bank on it alone. The newspaper, therefore, takes to itself a variety of other features, all primarily designed to hold a body of readers together, who so far as big news is concerned, are not able to be critical. Moreover, in big news, the competition in any one community is not very serious. The press services standardize the main events. It is only once in a while that a great scoop is made. 
there is, apparently, not a very great reading public for such massive reporting as has made the New York Times of recent years indispensable to men of all shades of opinion. In order to differentiate themselves and collect a steady public, most papers have to go outside the field of general news. They go to the dazzling levels of society, to scandal and crime, to sports, pictures, actresses, advice to the lovelorn, high school notes, women's pages, buyer's pages, cooking receipts, chess, whist, gardening, comic strips, thundering partisanship, not because publishers and editors are interested in everything but news, but because they have to find some way of holding on to that alleged host of passionately interested readers who are supposed by some critics of the press to be clamoring for the truth and nothing but the truth. The newspaper editor occupies a strange position. His enterprises depend upon indirect taxation, levied by his advertisers upon his readers. The patronage of the advertisers depends upon the editor's skill in holding together an effective group of customers. These customers deliver judgment, according to their private experiences and their stereotyped expectations, for in the nature of things they have no independent knowledge of most news they read. If the judgment is not unfavorable, the editor is at least within range of a circulation that pays. But in order to secure that circulation, he cannot rely wholly upon news of the greater environment. He handles that as interestingly as he can, of course, but the quality of the general news, especially about public affairs, is not in itself sufficient to cause very large numbers of readers to discriminate among the dailies. This somewhat left-handed relationship between newspapers and public information is reflected in the salaries of newspaper men. Reporting, which theoretically constitutes the foundation of the whole institution, is the most poorly paid branch of newspaper work, and is the least regarded. By and large, able men go into it only by necessity or for experience, and with the definite intention of being graduated as soon as possible. For straight reporting is not a career that offers many great rewards. The rewards in journalism go to specialty work, to sign correspondence which has editorial quality, to executives, and to men with a knack and flavor of their own. This is due, no doubt, to what economists call the rent of ability. But this economic principle operates with such peculiar violence in journalism that news-gathering does not attract to itself anything like the number of trained and able men which its public importance would seem to demand. The fact that the able men take up straight reporting with the intention of leaving it as soon as possible is, I think, the chief reason why it has never developed, in sufficient measure, those corporate traditions that give to a profession prestige and a jealous self-respect. For it is these corporate traditions which engender the pride of craft, which tend to raise the standards of admission, punish breaches of the code, and give men the strength to insist upon their status in society. Yet all this does not go to the root of the matter. For while the economics of journalism is such, as to depress the value of news reporting, it is, I am certain, a false determinism which would abandon the analysis of that point. The intrinsic power of the reporter appears to be so great, the number of very able men who pass through reporting is so large, that there must be some deeper reason why, comparatively speaking, so little serious effort has gone into raising the vocation to the level, say, of medicine, engineering, or law. Mr. Upton Sinclair speaks for a large body of opinion in America. Footnote. Mr. Hilaire Belloc makes practically the same analysis for English newspapers. See, the free press. 
when he claims that in what he calls the brass check, he has found this deeper reason. Quote, the brass check is found in your pay envelope every week, you who write and print and distribute our newspapers and magazines. The brass check is the price of your shame, you who take the fair body of truth and sell it in the marketplace, who betray the virgin hopes of mankind into the loathsome brothel of big business. End quote. Footnote. Upton Sinclair, The Brass Check, A Study of American Journalism, page 116. It would seem from this that there exists a body of known truth and a set of well-founded hopes which are prostituted by a more or less conscious conspiracy of the rich owners of newspapers. If this theory is correct, then a certain conclusion follows. It is that the fair body of truth would be inviolate in a press not any way connected with big business. For if it should happen that a press not controlled by, and not even friendly with, big business, somehow failed to contain the fair body of truth, something would be wrong with Mr. Sinclair's theory. There is such a press. Strange to say, in proposing a remedy, Mr. Sinclair does not advise his readers to subscribe to the nearest radical newspaper. Why not? If the troubles of American journalism go back to the brass check of big business, why does not the remedy lie in reading the papers that do not in any remote way accept the brass check? Why subsidize a national news with a large board of directors of all creeds or causes to print a paper full of facts, regardless of what is injured, the steel trust or the international workers of the world, the Standard Oil Company or the Socialist Party? If the trouble is big business, that is, the steel trust, Standard Oil and the like, why not urge everybody to read the international workers of the world or socialist papers? Mr. Sinclair does not say why not. But the reason is simple. He cannot convince anybody, not even himself, that the anti-capitalist press is the remedy for the capitalist press. He ignores the anti-capitalist press, both in his theory of the brass check and in his constructive proposal. But if you are diagnosing American journalism, you cannot ignore it. If what you care about is the fair body of truth, you do not commit the gross logical error of assembling all the instances of unfairness and lying you can find in one set of newspapers, ignore all the instances you could easily find in another set, and then assign as the cause of the lying the one supposedly common characteristic of the press to which you have confined your investigation. If you are going to blame capitalism for all the faults of the press, you are compelled to prove that those faults do not exist except where capitalism controls. That Mr. Sinclair cannot do this is shown by the fact that while in his diagnosis he traces everything to capitalism, in his prescription he ignores both capitalism and anti-capitalism. One would have supposed that the inability to take any non-capitalist paper as a model of truthfulness and competence would have caused Mr. Sinclair, and those who agree with him, to look somewhat more critically at their assumptions. They would have asked themselves, for example, where is the fair body of truth that big business prostitutes, but anti-big business does not seem to obtain? For that question leads, I believe, to the heart of the matter, to the question of what is news. End of chapter 22